go. Here we go. Because can chats with Mel and Deb. Number one. Number one. Um, does it pick up when I'm dipping the crunchy? Um, no, I think know. I think you'd be right. I think you'd be right with the hummus. Really? Because but it, your um, toasted it's... Lebanese bread is very crunchy. Look. I think we should stop eating. We should stop you mean eat... I have to stop eating? Yes, yeah, stop oh, eating now. But keep drinking, Mel. Right. Keep drinking. Well, <laughs> what no. what have we polished off already, Mel? Do you want to do you want to do a bit of a plug for Hunter Valley wines now? Well, I think it's important that we do a bit of a. We both love Hunter Valley wine. You like your New Zealand wine. Oh well, oh, I, I, but I mean, I'm just a wine whore, so it doesn't really matter. I'll drink anything really. Well, especially since you. I just think. It. Well, no, I just think Hunter Valley wine has so much going for it, and I really don't think do we do it justice in terms of. I, I would agree its with that. I would agree with that. Well, it gets you know, it gets kind of overlooked, overshadowed. By well, and given that this is our first podcast, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that Hunter Valley Vineyard starts sending us lots of free samples. So that we can highlight <laughs> their Hunter Valley wine on our podcast, which will of course end up with millions of followers. But do you know, Mel, that I the one fact that I took away from the um, wine and food expo the other night was the fact that the Hunter Valley is the oldest wine producer in Australia. Who knew? I, I knew. Oh, well, you would know. Well, that's only because ten years ago I was a PR consultant to mm. Hunter Valley Wine Country Tourism. So, yeah, I, I, I did know that because I used to use well, it. Well, I didn't, and most Australians don't know that. They so, don't know that. So the Barossa is poor. Is that poor PR on your part, Mel? Probably. <laughs> I, am, I am a bit of a slouch when it comes to PR, apparently. <laughs> Even though I am the PR educator of the year, according to the Public Relations you Institute. Are, you are. Let's drink to that. <laughs> oh, love those glasses. But... We are currently knocking off the very last of a bottle that we started on Friday mm-hmm. and we've been having a little sip. Is that a right to do that? And stretch it out over a weekend? A, a bottle of wine? Yes. Well, Doesn't it get into it? No, because that's the beauty of the Stelvin screw top top. Oh. It's, oh. That's, that's the beauty of oh, screw tops. Oh, well, that's good. Because in the past you had to drink a lot. Now we can have a lovely glass on Friday night, mm-hmm. a lovely glass... And now here we are finishing off. And of course we had enough to finish off a glass of the Komen and Co. Mm. Semillon mm. 2017. Mm. How long did he say it had been in the bottle? Two weeks. Two weeks. Heavens, you couldn't get fresher than that. No. And then I had a little bit of his Fiana, mm-hmm. which is an Italian grape. He's the only one apparently doing it in Australia. And that was pretty, uh, it's a bit like a Frascati party in the mouth. It was. It was great. It was. An Italian Chianti, but with class. Okay. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so look, but one of the things, okay, we, we decided we'd do this podcast and talk about what has caught our attention this week. Mm-hmm. So Mel, what has caught your attention this week? Well, you know, there's so much stuff happening in the world. Mm-hmm. It just seemed to me imperative that I talk about what caught my attention was, in fact, on Friday night when you and I went for the three-hour cheap pass mm-hmm. to the Food and Wine Expo, mm-hmm. which was in Newcastle, but is actually a travelling food and wine expo around Australia. It was really interesting because it's a great little event. A lot of Hunter um, Newcastle people were there, but a lot of people from around Australia were also there. We mm. met people from Adelaide right. and um, from Victoria. Mm. A lot of people come from all over the place to be there. And even the people 
that were from the Hunter Valley. Mm. Like there was the Smelly Cheese Shop, for example, who are located in um, like the centre of the Hunter Valley, right near Hunter Valley Gardens, like they're, they're right in the, in the Bang Centre. And who was the other cheese company? Hunter Bell. Hunter, Hunter Bell. Bell. Mr and Mrs Cheese from my... We're actually eating some Hunter Bell as we speak. Oh some feta. Oh my God, that's gorgeous. It, it is, it is. It's beautiful. Hunter Bell is from Musselbrook. And that's right up at the Upper Hunter. And that's like a, like, it's a over 100k drive. It's 120k. And then they were going back that night. They were going back that night, coming back the next day. So Huge this Valley's Wine and Food Expo, like, people are investing a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to get there. And to be perfectly frank, mm-hmm. sorry, Food and Wine Expo, I'm not all that impressed with what leveraging support for PR that those exhibitors were getting. The event was great. Great, I've been there before. That's why I said to Deb, let's go. Mm -hmm. You'll love it. Mm -hmm. I did, I loved it. But, you know, we were talking to some of those small exhibitors and they didn't have a clue, did they? No. No support. Well, no support, no guidance, perhaps. What weren't they getting? What weren't they getting in terms of... Well, they weren't... They obviously weren't getting like that basically the what they were getting from the wine and food expo was was is it food and wine or wine and food i don't know well i think well even that is a problem isn't it we went there on friday night and we don't know what it's called (laughs) because there was no like everyone was taking photos and 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 you know we were trying to do a bit of social media we couldn't find a hashtag no there was no hashtag around for the event in newcastle so Food and Wine Expo, which is, I think is, is what it was called. Mm-hmm. Food and Wine Expo Newcastle, there was no hashtag. It's basic, isn't it? Well, you think, you know, as you walk in, tweet about our event, you know, Instagram, Instagram. our, our mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. It was so visual. Mm. And there was no one there. No. There was no one, there was no overarching and, you know, and a call hashtag, to action. A hashtag actually encourages people to post because they think they're sharing in something. Absolutely. Mm. It brings together a sense of community. That's right. And we know that, you know, that community isn't actually a community necessarily, unless you define a community as something very ephemeral that only But you think you're part of something. You think you post a photo on Instagram or food or whatever. I know. And you think, oh, well, other people who are following this hashtag will see my photo. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I think for an event and for the exhibitors, it gives them confidence in the event. It, it makes them feel that... You know, they're part of something, and indeed they are part of something bigger than just having paid their money to go to an well, event. Well, you and I know we've been to numerous conferences and things, and the hashtag is always brought up first thing. This is what we're using. That's right. And often I think people go, oh, right, okay. And if they haven't, they've been saying, I've been so looking forward to this conference, and then suddenly they start hashtagging, and then, of course, what that does is expand their network because mm. other people that they don't mm. follow or don't follow them. But wouldn't you think the organisers would want to be able to see what people are saying about them using the hashtag? Well, I'm look, I don't know at the moment who organises the Food and Wine Expo. No. .com, .au. But I think, you know, we might find out after this podcast, God forbid, we'll probably be in court. Who knows? But the thing is, is that it's really hard to understand why... When it's so easy to help companies, small businesses leverage social media, why these organisations don't do it? Because they would have a better result at the end of it, mm. and they'd 
then recommend everybody else go and buy a stall. There were there was room in that Newcastle Entertainment Centre oh. for more stalls. Mm. So imagine if all those people went back, hundred percent satisfied and going, oh my god, we picked up you know five hundred extra followers on our Instagram. Where our sales were good. Blah blah blah. The word of mouth would follow for next mm. year and that event would probably even be more mm. successful. Mm. The power of the hashtag. Well, how many years is it? Dead? Ten years on Twitter. They've been using a hashtag, so it's not a new thing. Well, I spread the tweet around that. It was on wired.com. Here we are filling up Deb's glass with a bottle of Coman & Co. <laughs> oh! Now, this is the Fiana. This is the Italian one. Now, Coman & Co. Scott, you know we love you. We only met you on Friday night, but we're having a relationship. <laughs> Please feel free to send more and we'll talk more about it. But anyway, God, we are whores for PR. <laughs> Maybe that should be our title of our no. podcast. No. Whores for PR. Many years ago when I started mm. in PR, academia, there was a woman who had a website and a blog called The Strumpet. Oh. What about our names when we went to Ireland? Oh my God! What were they? The Galway block. Uh, the Galway hooker. The Galway hooker, and the strawberry, strawberry blonde. blonde. There you go. You say I'm a Galway hooker. <laughs> so there's no way I can be a strawberry blonde. No, I'm the strawberry blonde, hands down. Oh my God! <laughs> anyway, we're getting so off topic. Look, we are getting a little bit off topic, but the thing is, is that well, we're talking about our own PR and branding. But I want to get back briefly to Wine and, Wine and Food Expo. Lots and lots of opportunities lost. Talking to a lot of the exhibitors as we were going around, they were looking for guidance. A lot of small businesses don't have that. No. Um, you know, a lot no. of them have... Good point. You know, Good point. And we were, we were walking around saying that we were lecturers at the University of Newcastle, and we were actually offering guidance, weren't we? We, mm. we probably gave out, given that, you know, we would probably consult for at least $200 an hour each. Even though we paid five dollars to get in, and five dollars for a glass, but we felt that we felt that they needed this. Well, they wanted it. Once mm. we once we sort of talked about things, mm. people were quizzing us, weren't they? They were desperate for information and guidance, mm. and no one told us to rack off. No, it was really quite nice, and and no, that was noticeable, wasn't it? The fact that no one sort of took offence to it. Everyone was sort of saying. Oh, you know, they were really curious about it and the whole idea. They were aware of the importance of this sort of marketing, but and I don't think they'd thought about it. And I mean, it sort of really did shine a light on perhaps some of the shortcomings. Of the organisers. Mm. I think maybe in terms of, like, I don't think any of what we're talking about would take one thing away from the Food and Wine Expo. No, no. I think it would only add... um, You're using the crunchy bread. I know, it's going to crack, isn't it? Well, I don't think it matters. I'll stop, stop. Well, I think as long as we're authentic... I'll go back to the um, Hunter Bell feta cheese, because that that is soft and creamy and it doesn't make any I know, but put on a bit of bread. Go on. No, no. No one will mind if it crunches. No, no, it's fine. So, Deb, what caught your attention this week? Well, I, you know me, Mel. I, I love politics. You're a bloody political junkie. Yes, I am. I'm a political junkie. 
And so I was really interested in this whole kind of debate that's going on about... What, in Australia? In Australia, yes. This whole kind of idea of aspirationals. And um, I was watching Insiders... What's an aspirational? Well, there was something that John Howard really made good use of. And now, was, we've got an international audience here. Who the fuck was John Howard? Former Prime Minister of Australia. And conservative? In Conservative Prime Minister. Was he conservative or liberal? Because just just for our international audience. All right. Okay. Well, you know, we, we say liberal, but it's conservative. It, it is on the right wing. Yes, it is on the just right wing. Just to give people a bit of context. All right. Okay. Well, don't you think? Because well, I've completely lost what I was going to talk about now. No, you're not. You'll be fine. Will I? Well, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to talk about. But well, the thing is, to... well, I'm just thinking we've got a massive international audience. And if you start talking about. I mean, I talked about the local food and wine expo. Mm. That was as local as you can get, I suppose. But all right, so I'm 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 broadening out now into, into politics. Into politics, yes. Okay. So what's this? What's this? What's happening in Australia? Well, and why would anyone be interested? Well, I think it's just really interesting because you know we've got this far right kind of movement in the US with Donald Trump as president, and yep. we. And we, you know, you and I, we're positioning theorists at heart. You know, I know. This is kind of, I know. And so it's really interesting to kind of always apply positioning theory, particularly in political things. I think. Well, political PR and positioning really they're one and the same. Mm. Are they? Are well, they oh. Well, don't you think? Oh. Isn't it all about how politicians know. position themselves yeah. and their policies and yeah, yeah, like yeah. Theresa May and David, like why we went from David Cameron to Theresa May. Theresa May. You know, I thought you were saying Theresa May. Theresa May. What, what isn't that a name? Theresa, Theresa May? May. Theresa May in the UK? Yes, the current... two words. Theresa May. Theresa May? <laughs> oh, is that, be, oh, is that because... <laughs> it was a bit like Theresa May. Oh, Theresa May is one that's, name. That's my Aussie accent. I thought it was that girl that did the cooking at the food Oh, that's and Carly and Tresnay. Yeah, that's the food and wine that's expert. That's I thought you were talking about, Tresnay. Man, if we're confused, imagine what our audience Theresa May, Tresnay. It's all much the same. Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the UK. There you go. Is that better? That's much better. Okay. So at the moment, we've got Theresa May in the UK, who's conservative. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who's mm-hmm. representing the de- uh, the Republicans, who've mm-hmm. always been more conservative. And, and, and But really, Trump has even kind of defied definition by the Republicans. But we'll leave that for a moment, park mm-hmm. that. We've got the Libs, the conservative sort of side of things in New Zealand, where mm-hmm. you're originally from. And we've got the conservative side of things in power in Australia, mm-hmm. where I'm originally from. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, we're kind of a, a, a reflection of what's going on in the bigger world a bit, aren't we? We are. I, I would agree with that. You're talking about aspirationals, which seem to me to be the people who might have I'm getting broader in my Aussie accent as we're going along. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, yeah think, I think I am. Anyway, <laughs> but the thing is, aspirational people, they were the ones that Trump's people were kind of maybe appealing to, and it's kind of who... Yeah, was yeah, it yeah. Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, who mm. are who were the Prime Ministers on the Conservative side of Australian politics. Mm. They also went for the last election for those people. Aspirationals. What's mm. happening? You've noticed something. Well, I haven't, but I, I did hear somebody else comment right. today about right. this whole kind of notion of aspirationals, which was all well and good while people were still um, had reason to believe that they could in fact be aspirational because their wages were increasing and 
but the way the um, market economy is in Australia at the moment is people's wages haven't written a, risen in real terms in the last three years. So this is it only three years? I don't feel like my wages have gone up for a longer time than that even. Well, like, I feel... I've, I don't know. I'm have not, yours? I, I, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? But, well, it's a bit... My wages are always a bit tricky, but... <laughs> <laughs> so people... Have, people. I think yes, the statistics yes. are showing that there's no real wage, wage rises no. in Australia for over three years. That's right. That's right. So this whole idea that you can have this narrative about aspirationals and you know people um, just working hard sort of having the having the right to rise to the top and aspire to be wealthy yep. is falling on deaf ears because people don't feel wealthy people aren't feeling that they are in fact aspirational anymore whereas originally when they voted in this this sort of conservative government back in 2013 was mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. wages were on the rise mm-hmm. house prices were on the rise mm-hmm. Australia has kind of been a bit out of kilter with a lot of the other parts of the world, like the US, um, in terms of its economic growth. We haven't had that major recession that happened mm. um, around the global financial crisis in the 08, 09. And so people still felt quite hopeful and that they too could get their million-dollar house, have their $200,000 a year wage, and even though they were in the kind of what would have been called the working class or middle class suburbs of the capital mm. cities of the states, is that right? Yes. So bringing this back to the whole idea of positioning theory and about the rights that you have to promulgate particular narratives. And it kind of made me think that, you know, in terms of um, positioning theory and positioning yourself, then this whole idea of the government's the current government, the current conservative government, of running this story about, oh, we shouldn't be attacking people that are aspirational, is kind of really missing the mark, I think. So who... They're saying don't attack people who are aspirational. So mm-hmm. who is attacking the aspirational class at the moment? Well, they're sort of saying that the opposition... So our Labour... Our Labour Party. Our Labour left-leaning mm-hmm. opposition... Mm-hmm. Is, is doing what? Well, they're saying he's a Marxist, really. <laughs> what? So our conservatives are actually... It has taken a real kind of change because I would say five years ago there wasn't a lot between the left and the right mm. in Australian politics in terms of philosophy. And I think what you're saying is, you know, we've had conversations like this over the, over the past couple of weeks and months, but, like, Bill Shorten, who's our leader of the opposition... Mm-hmm. leader of the Labour Party in Australia, is really um, doing this thing about how the current government are doing everything just to forward the agenda of the rich. Mm-hmm. And he's screwing over people who are workers mm-hmm. and um, anyone who wants to kind of get ahead mm-hmm. from the working class. Mm-hmm. And what the current government is coming back with is that stuff like going, oh, you're just attacking people who want to get ahead that's it and you're trying to keep them in their place as working class that's it so we're really going back to these kind of differentiation lines between the right and the left wing which mm. we haven't seen in australia no. but isn't that but i mean doesn't that echo what's happened still in the uk it has mm. it has what's interesting i think what you're saying is that what do you do when all the political narrative over the last, I would say, almost two decades in Australia and elsewhere, there hasn't been a lot of differentiation between left and right. 
And what we've seen emerge in the last, say, three years mm. is some differentiation. Mm. We've seen it in the UK. We're certainly seeing it in Germany and in France. We're seeing it in the US. And now we're definitely seeing it in Australia. Um, I think it's emerging in New Zealand. Mm. Um, well, we'll see. Well, with the couple new... A couple of days out to the election. A couple of days, a couple of weeks. New Labour leader. Mm. Very interesting times. But I think in terms of positioning, suddenly people are carving out different positions for people to have to kind of negotiate mm. where they sit. Mm. I don't know. And that's, I mean, we're getting a bit sort of foggy here, I think this far mm. in and this will never go to air but it will get mm. some feedback but what I think we should have done this one first as you suggested um, <laughs> is that if you think about that there are different positions mm. and suddenly we have two major political parties with different positions, quite different positions what does that do to the Australian voting public because it's been quite mixed. We've had typically working class people voting for the right. We've had people kind of questioning whether they should keep with the left and what does the left stand for. Everyone's moved to what they've called the centre, mm. but now they're polarising back to the left and right. With this polarisation, is that does that give people hope? Does it give people... I don't know. We haven't done the surveys of the voting classes, mm. but in terms of actually advising political leaders on their positioning and PR, mm. I think they're not getting it right. Mm. Do you? Who do you think is getting it right in Australia at the moment, for example? Sorry, we can edit all this crap out, but... I don't know. Who's getting it right? I don't think... I don't think the government's getting it right. I know the government's not getting it right. So the government in terms of the... I mean, there's enough... There's enough um, the spokespeople we've heard today... Like, not today, but, like, leading up to today are the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. And we need to finance... think about it in terms of authenticity, don't we, Mel? Authenticity. Mm. What do who's, you mean by that? Who's, who's, the more, who's, who's, holding, who's promulgating the more authentic position? But what's authentic, do? When you really think about it, what is authentic? Authentic is everything that's not fake. Mm. So have they previously been fake? Are they being forced by each other to be more Isn't authentic? Interesting, because you know, and I, thinking about this, authenticity isn't just in the here and now. Authenticity is the stories that have gone on beforehand too. The authenticity is the stories that have gone on before. You think about that. You think about like one of Bill Shorten's. I don't think you should push our podcast recorder one, out of the way. One of Bill Shorten's. Thomas is still on. One of Bill Shorten's kind of, it's often brought back, was the way he went down to those miners at, at um, Beaconsfield. Oh, oh. So in that moment, Bill Shorten was seen as being authentic. Does everyone know about what happened? About the miners that were trapped underground. In the gold mine. Yeah, for how many Beaconsfield. days? Beaconsfield, oh, 10 days, wasn't it? I, don't know, I thought it was longer, but anyway. Well, it was a long awful, time. And awful. Bill Shorten was on the ground. Almost most of the time. Because he was the leader of the union. Yep. And he was down there in the pouring rain. He was. He was brilliant. Yes. And that story has carried with him through, over time. It has certainly underpinned his authenticity as someone who can speak for the working class. And in positioning theory, 
we say that this is he has the right yes it underpins his right to be mm. a labor leader mm. so these past events so when you when you're talking about authenticity it isn't just in that moment it's the stuff that's gone on beforehand as well it's what's already in people's minds it's the ties that bind absolutely we go right back to rise and trout who wrote firstly about positioning in the late 70s you have to tie things to what people already understand and i think you're right because it's bill shorten even you know he might live whatever life he currently leaves I, i'm not completely okay with his life but i would imagine it'd be fairly comfortable mm. but the fact that he spent that 10 days on the ground mm. in the mud you know in the rain in the in the whatever um, was involved in the union movement it's hard to take that away from Bill mm. Shorten mm. and anything he says now is kind of informed in mm. the in that kind of long-term narrative structure and then, and then we have the Prime Minister Turnbull Turnbull who at one stage came out with this story that he was hard done by because he'd spent a night without any furniture but as it turned out, they were moving into a double bay flat with views of, over Sydney Harbour. and um, Which at the time wasn't that posh, but... I think it was still... It, it was still indicative of the fact that he wasn't on the streets or close to no. being on the streets, which so many working families were well, he tried at to, that he time. He tried to frame it around as, you know, I know what it is to go without. Well, one night because your furniture hasn't been delivered... Is not the same as going without for weeks on end. There is problems with the authenticity of Turnbull's story because mm. he doesn't claim to be the silver tongue spoon in the mouth boy, but he which, actually is. But really, his his position as prime minister, as a very rich man in Australia, as you know, someone who's done very well out of business, positions him very much as having benefited from good marital links, good business judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, he's obviously intelligent, but all the things, you know, I think he did have a social conscience. He showed that in 2010 over the climate change debate and the emissions mm. trading scheme when he was scuttled as leader mm. by Tony Abbott. Mm. That's not the first time he's been scuttled as leader, though. No, no. So he's, he, you know, he's, bringing, he's brought these problems with him all the way along. So that does really question the authenticity of him to be this well it questions the authenticity of him to be the leader really well i don't think huh? i think um we've got to be careful about volume that we don't get too reflective and quiet <laughs> all right <laughs> but it does it, it is what you say it's like he has not had like, if you look at positioning theory that says he's got a position, all right? He's the leader of the party. He's supposed to be towing, you know, promulgating the Liberal National... Uh, what is it? Liberal National Coalition. Quite a, a, a right-leaning agenda. He's supposed to be promulgating that to the masses of Australia, getting people to vote for him again. He barely made it um, back into office after the last election last year. Mm. Um really just by a, a thread he actually mm. lost seats in the house i think the fact that his stories are confused That's his right. position is not solid he brings together some claims to rights to be there 
but the stories that he tells to support those rights, like his proof points mm. to say that I deserve to be here, I'm solid, I'm authentic. Mm. Mm. They're not there. No. They're all over the place. And uh, you it's know, a, actually, I think the more you think about it, Deb, you're right. It really is. We need to do our next journal article about Turnbull mm-hmm. and why he's so wobbly in his position as prime minister. Not so much even in. The, I mean, he's elected as prime minister, so he's in the role, but his position in terms of being able to exercise his rights, duties, and obligations as prime minister well, are I mean, very precarious. And, and he seems to be ambivalent. He seems to be... I don't know. I don't think he's ambivalent. I think he's so beholden to that very conservative wing that obviously, you know... I he's mean, Prime Minister. Yes, but he doesn't have that support of the party room. But he's Prime Minister. That's the role. You, you know what I mean? Like, you've said this often, the role and the position are very different. So his mm. role is Prime Minister, mm. but if you look at the power he wields, he has the hierarchical power. Mm-hmm. He to, does. He because does. he is Prime he Minister. Does. Yes, he does. His rhetorical power, though, because he's all over the place with his stories, mm. and, yes, and not just the current stories, as you say, the stories that he has told about himself over the last 15 years mm. don't add up. They don't provide the proof. Well, I mean, this week he said that, you know the whole same-sex marriage debate. You know, you should hug someone who's feeling hurt by anti-same-sex marriage um, campaign. You should feel... You should hug them. You should go and make them feel better. I mean, that's... It's an ex- I mean, if you go back to the positioning theory and the triangle of position, speech, act, action, which brings together how you're going to enact your position, mm-hmm. and the proof points or stories that you tell about these things. If you go right back to that and go, my desired position is to be seen to be, you know, open to same-sex marriage um, and, you know, I'm going to say instead of, if you've got half a brain, you know, Australians, you'll vote well, yes. Well, he said that he and Lucy will be voting yes. Yes, but he has, he has expressed that as saying, we're committing to voting yes. Mm-hmm. That's a commissive speech act. Mm-hmm. He has said, you should go and hug people Mm. who are feeling hurt. Mm. That is an expressive speech act. Mm. It's actually a directive because he's telling you to go out Mm. and hug. Mm. But he has not done the two speech acts that will actually change the reality of Australian Mm. life, which Mm. are the assertive... Mm. Same-sex marriage is what's needed. Same-sex marriage is a human right. Same-sex marriage is normal, is what Australians need to embrace. Mm. This is the reality of of a contemporary Australia. Mm. And for those that seek to do otherwise are so out of touch... And, this and is... then he needs to do the declarative. I'm sorry to keep yes, talking yes. over you. Yes. But the final speech act, according to Searle, is the declarative, yeah. which is the legal thing. Yeah. And all he, and he's the man yeah. Yeah. that can change that. And if he gets accused of being a waffler, or what do they call him? Fizzer. They call him Fizzer? What else do they call him? <laughs> they, <laughs> they call him... They say, a Fizzer, which is a, which is a firecracker that you light up, but and it, it never actually... Nothing happens. Nothing happens. You don't get the... 
You don't get the spectacle. You don't get the. You don't no, get it the just it, it just sort of you know. Yeah, yeah. Look, glows for a little while and, and fizzes that, out. And that's it. That's it. It is. But when you go back to speech act theory, doesn't this show you the power of yes, positioning theory? It does. You know, he's waffling around with expressing how he feels, mm. directing people to go give people hugs, committing to voting yes All himself. Right, so we've got a paper there. We do. Assertive and declarative. I will... Same-sex marriage paper. We obviously need to do that for the conversation ASAP. Okay. I'll do that in my spare time. It's all right. <laughs> but is that true or is that true? It is Holy true. fuck, we've just hit on something there. Yeah. I tell you what, Comans... Oh, you better... You better, you better um, no, 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 that's all right. We've got it recorded on our podcast. Oh, okay. But Comans and Co, you've got a lot to answer for. We've come up with a brilliant academic paper. Have we? Because of drinking Comans wine. Comans and Co, Semillon and Fiana. Mm-hmm. Very nice it was too. Very nice. I think, I think that's enough for me tonight. But I think you've brought up so many interesting issues. So have you. God, we're a good team, Deb. <laughs> That's Deb and Mel on PR. Was promoting. That, well, was that PR? What was that? Public relations. I know, but what's, it was... It was, was well, it? we need to define public relations. It's whatever we bloody well think it is. Public relationships. Publics form around issues. Organisations, governments and entities need to engage with organisations, people and social media groups and everyone who forms around an issue. And you man- told me that... You told me, you said to me, I said, some people say that all PR is issues management. You said, no, don't go there. Well, it's not issues management, but publics are people. Well, if people are forming around issues, you must manage I'm far out, Deb. (laughs) Now we've got to do a second podcast. (laughs) And now we're going to start sounding like, who was that? I don't know, but we're going to need another bottle of wine. So, Prue and Prue and Prue, yes, Prue and Prue. We can sound out of um, Kath I think and Kim. I'm a bit worried we might just sound like two pissed women. We're not pissed. We're drinking responsibly. Oh, Thank right. you, Hunter Valley Wine. And if you're not sending us a bottle, I don't think anyone's ever going to listen to this. I think you're wrong. Do you? Yeah. Okay. We'll see what the stats say next okay. week. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Two. Well, you've got to push that. I can't stop it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't stop it. Truer words have never been said.